Welcome to Grading the Nutmeg, the podcast of Connecticut history, brought to you by the state historian at UConn Hartford and Connecticut Explored, the magazine of Connecticut history. I'm Walt Woodward. In this installment of Grading the Nutmeg, Natalie Bellinger of the Connecticut Historical Society takes a walk through the museum's archival collection of documents related to the Ku Klux Klan. You'll learn about the Klan's sudden rise and rapid fall in 1920s Connecticut, a time when Connecticut was torn by disagreements over immigration policy and the changing demographics of the United States. That's coming up right now on Grading the Nutmeg. What do you think of when you think of the Ku Klux Klan? We've been asking this question a lot at the Connecticut Historical Society over the last months. Our current exhibition, Black Citizenship in the Age of Jim Crow, features a reproduction KKK outfit from 1866 Tennessee. It doesn't look like what most people imagine when they think of the Klan. A brown robe trimmed with what looks like white doilies and red and white flowers. It's nothing like the white robes and pointy hoods that most Americans conjure up when they think of the Klan. Those came later. In fact, the Klan has had several different lives in the United States since the Civil War. The first iteration of the Klan was born in Pulaski, Tennessee in 1865, taking its name from the Greek word kuklos, meaning circle. The Klan operated during the Reconstruction era as a white supremacy terror group, that used violence and intimidation to prevent newly freed slaves from exercising their rights. Blacks who ran for public office were beaten. Schools that educated black children were burned. Whites who cooperated with the enfranchisement of blacks or voted Republican, the party of Lincoln, were also targeted. Thousands of murders, assaults, and arsons were committed by the Klan throughout the former Confederacy. However, the life of this first Klan was short. Many white Southerners were unhappy with the lawlessness of the Klan, seeing it as a cover for general criminal activity. And the violence, for a time at least, angered many Northerners. In the early 1870s, the federal government cracked down on the KKK, and it was effectively broken. But its goal of maintaining white supremacy in the South had been achieved. In the later 1870s, as Reconstruction ended and federal troops pulled out of Southern states, African Americans were deprived of their rights with the sanction of local and state law enforcement, and the federal government abandoned Southern blacks to their fate. This first iteration of the Ku Klux Klan was a Southern phenomenon. It's the second iteration of the Klan that had the biggest impact in Connecticut, and it owed its existence to a movie, 1915's The Birth of a Nation. The movie was based on the popular novel and play called The Klansman, a historical romance of the Ku Klux Klan by Thomas Dixon. The title of the book gives you an idea of the plot. Noble Southern heroes facing down greedy Yankees and vengeful former slaves create a vigilante group to fight for their rights. In a climactic scene, the heroic Klan lynches an African-American man, played by a white actor in blackface, who attempted to rape a white woman. The Birth of a Nation was hugely popular and ran periodically in theaters for years after its 1915 release, despite the fact that the NAACP called for a boycott of the film. In Hartford, its first run was censored. The lynching scene was cut out as a concession to protest by the black community. Later, the movie was shown in its entirety. But in 1919, another run was curtailed at the request of the Connecticut Americanization Committee for fear that it would stir up, quote, race antagonism. What's the Americanization Committee? 
I'll come back to that in a minute. The birth of a nation revived interest in the Ku Klux Klan. William J. Simmons, an itinerant preacher, formally reestablished the KKK in Georgia in 1915. This clan was different in many ways from the original version. For one, it was a business. With the help of a PR firm, the Klan developed a wildly successful marketing scheme. The organization was national with state offices, paid recruiters, and membership fees. There were Klan newspapers and pamphlets and catalogs that sold banners and regalia that fit every budget. Much of the symbolism of the new Klan was borrowed from the birth of a nation. White robes and pointed hoods, for example, had not been used by the Reconstruction-era clan, nor had they burned crosses. That's straight out of Thomas Dixon's imagination. This time, the clan presented itself as fiercely patriotic, whereas the original version had consisted of mostly former Confederate soldiers who loathed the federal government. And unlike the original clan, which was a vigilante terrorist group that often operated at night, the 1920s version of the clan presented itself just like any other fraternal organization— They had a woman's auxiliary and a junior auxiliary. They put on parades and rallies during the day that culminated with evening cross burnings. In 1927, the combined clans of Connecticut, Rhode Island, Massachusetts, New York, and New Jersey held a field day at Bruce Park in Greenwich. It featured games of -of tug-of-war and baseball. Thousands of people attended, not all of them clan members. A real key difference between the original clan and Clan 2.0 was geography. This new clan had its strength in the Midwest and the West. It arrived in New England in 1921 with chapters in Boston and Portland, Maine. The Connecticut clan began to get attention in 1922 after some public meetings followed by initiation ceremonies in New Haven and Middletown. By the mid-1920s, national clan membership had peaked at between four to five million members. In Connecticut, there were 26 units in the state by 1926, with a membership of about 65,000 or so they claimed. What was the attraction and who signed up? For many, the mystique and secrecy of the Klan was compelling. There was a whole vocabulary of Klan language, even to renaming days of the week. If you're curious, the new days of the week were called desperate, dreadful, desolate, doleful, dismal, deadly, and dark. Clan officers had titles like Klegal and Grand Dragon and Exalted Cyclops. They used secret greetings. For example, AAC was an acronym for Are You a Klansman? If you were greeted with AAC, you responded, Akia, a Klansman I am. Rallies and initiations operated according to published sets of rituals. At the CHS, we have a collection of 1920s-era Klan papers, pamphlets, and ephemera, most likely collected by a Klan member from the Manchester-Vernon area. This collection includes blank application forms for both the Klan and the Junior Klan. The adult forms ask questions about hair and eye color, place of birth, and a slew of questions aimed at religion. Just some examples. Are you Gentile? What are your religious beliefs? Member of what church? What church attended or favored? Name of pastor? Have you ever been a member of the Roman Catholic Church? Are any of the members of your immediate family members of the Roman Catholic Church? This application helps us to answer the question of why Connecticut was so ripe for Klan organizing in the 1920s. In 1920, immigrants constituted 27.4% of Connecticut's population. Today, it's more like 14%. The top countries of origin for newcomers were Italy, Russia, Lithuania, Poland, Ireland, and Canada— these newcomers were overwhelmingly Catholic. 40% of Connecticuts were Catholic in 1920, making that church the largest single denomination in the state. 
Concerns about the growth of the non-native-born population in Connecticut got worse during the First World War. Remember that Americanization committee I mentioned that helped to stop the airing of the birth of the nation in Hartford? That committee was an attempt to speed the assimilation of the foreign-born population here. It created posters, pamphlets, even a movie to promote Americanization. This concern reached into schools with proposed legislation aimed to prevent all Connecticut schools from teaching in non-English languages. This was a measure that clearly targeted parochial schools with largely immigrant pupils. After legislative pushback from several French-Canadian representatives, the bill was altered to allow one hour per day of instruction in a non-English language and became law in 1923. The CHS's collection of Klan propaganda suggests that it was its anti-immigrant and anti-Catholic tenets that attracted the most attention here in the nutmeg state. A postcard with the title, Six Million Foreigners Hold Good Jobs, Why?, depicts a caricatured Italian man named Tony kicking a well-dressed man off a dock into the ocean as the well-dressed man protests, but I am an American-born citizen. The back of the card is a form letter. The user addressed it to his congressman to express support for legislation mandating, quote, no jobs for illegal foreigners until every American is employed. The collection also includes several song sheets indicating that music was an important part of Klan activities. Patriotic and religious standards like America and Onward Christian Soldiers are there, listed alongside alternative lyrics to other popular songs that express Klan ideology. An example, how about Yankee Doodle with the chorus, Ku Kluxers keep it up, work and play together, lend each one the helping hand no matter what the weather. Another sign of the Klan's focus on religion was the fact that it formed its own church in Sterling, Connecticut, the United Protestant Church, in 1927. The organizers told the newspapers that the church wasn't affiliated with the Klan, but over half its members were Klansmen. The pastor was a Methodist who had been dismissed from his own Sterling church over his Klan affiliation. Participants at the opening celebration came from 16 states. The pastor of the church, the Reverend Ernest C. Drake, was the star speaker at a Klan meeting in Glastonbury in 1929, a meeting that the Hartford Current noted was, quote, except for characteristic speeches and the burning of a cross, more like a picnic. Drake's speech touched on several Klan talking points. He quoted former President Calvin Coolidge's catchphrase, Keep America American, as a slogan, quote, worthy of a Klansman. He also urged support for a federal department of education to combat the influence of parochial schools. He voiced approval for the stringent immigration restriction laws that Congress had passed in the 1920s. And he said that the Klan should now direct its future efforts to ensuring that the census would count the number of, quote, aliens living in each state so as to better determine apportionment to Congress. The 1920s era Klan in the South committed many acts of violence that targeted African-Americans. That doesn't seem to have happened here, but Connecticut seemed to have expected it to. In 1927, for example, papers reported that a mixed-race couple in Rockville was threatened over the phone about their impending wedding, and a cross was burned as a warning. They got married anyway, despite having to find a new minister at the last minute, because the original guy was too scared to perform the ceremony. Both the Hartford Current and the Rockville leader later printed retractions stating that the story was false. Connecticut didn't have any laws against mixed-race marriages, although in 1927 an anti-miscegenation law was introduced in the General Assembly, likely with Klan support. It was soundly defeated. 
Another story that sheds some light on the Klan and race is that of Julius Land, a black man originally from North Carolina. In 1923, he was arrested in the murder of two white men in Cromwell. The newspapers reported that police, afraid that a lynch mob might form, were sent over the edge by a call from a Meriden Klansman who offered, quote, assistance to the police in this matter. Later, the Klansman said that he meant that he would assist the cops in upholding law and order. Land was later acquitted of murder on a plea of self-defense, ably defended by African-American attorneys who moved the courtroom to tears by evoking the fear of violence that so many black Southerners lived with. I couldn't find any further comment from the Klan on the Land case. It's hard to imagine this case having the disposition it did in, say, Alabama. Congress never moved to squash this iteration of the Klan, but on the state level, there was opposition. Some legislators tried to pass bills that would fine people for hiding their identities when gathered in large groups. That didn't pass. However, the state fire warden decreed that you needed a permit to burn a cross, and many towns then used permitting to limit Klan meetings. Half the New Britain police force refused to attend their weekly physical drill because someone had witnessed the drill instructor leave a Klan meeting. At a major Klan rally in Woodstock in 1926, 3,000 Klansmen attended. 300 people showed up to peacefully protest. The Jewish Anti-Defamation League and the NAACP worked tirelessly against the Klan in Connecticut, as well as nationally. What about the political parties? The Klan in the Northeast found more empathy among Republicans simply because so many Catholics were Democrats. And this was magnified in 1928, when the Democrats chose Al Smith, the Irish Catholic governor of New York, as their presidential candidate. The Klan hated Al Smith. The idea that a Catholic son of immigrants could become president of the United States represented all their worst fears about the decline of white Anglo-Saxon Protestant power in America. They wrote a lot of songs targeting Al Smith, one of them to the tune of My Bonnie Lies Over the Ocean, crooned, Pope Pius is boss over millions. He'll never be boss over me. He tried to put Smith in the White House. The order came over the sea. The Protestants gave it veto, real Protestants like you and me. Throughout the United States, the Klan's fall was as rapid as its rise. In 1926, the most influential Klan unit in the state, New Haven's, disbanded. Why the break? The New Haven chapter secretary told the papers that, quote, the heads of the organization were after the almighty dollar and that they were signing up riffraff. He also said that hundreds of men in New Haven have made a mistake. The New York Times opined that, quote, all the better element of the Klan are quitting it. The New Haven Journal Courier said that, quote, whatever the evils that have crept into the life of the United States, and they are not few, their remedy does not lie in a passionate clash of political, racial, and religious prejudices. This makes it seem like the breakup of the Klan was due to ideological reasons, that people were coming to their senses and decrying prejudice. But there were a lot more practical reasons for the decline of the Klan here in Connecticut and nationwide. Right from the start, the national organization had been plagued with infighting and schisms. One national leader, D.C. Stevenson, was convicted of rape and murder in the mid-20s. This gave the Klan a national public relations black eye that it never recovered from. The fact that so much of the organizing of the Klan focused around membership fees that were clearly enriching the leadership irked many people, as that New Haven unit leader's statement indicates. 
By 1930, membership in the Klan was down to 30,000 people nationally from a peak of 4 to 5 million. It dissolved in 1944 after basically going broke. In Connecticut, the Klan had claimed 65,000 members at its peak. The real numbers were probably closer to 22,000, but by 1930, there were only 453 members left. The third iteration of the Klan, primarily this time a Southern organization, arose after World War II in opposition to the civil rights movement and lasted well into the 70s. The Klan made a comeback in the 1980s and continues to the present day, although the Southern Poverty Law Center notes that there are no Klan chapters today in Connecticut. Whereas the Klan in Connecticut in the 1920s was composed of white Protestants who primarily opposed Catholics and immigrants, the Northeastern Klan of the later 20th century consisted of whites, including Catholics, who targeted racial minorities, particularly African-Americans. In 1986, Connecticut attracted national attention when a man from Shelton named James Farrand was elected Grand Wizard of the National Ku Klux Klan. James Farrand was a Catholic, a sign of how much the organization had changed. If you'd like to learn more about the Ku Klux Klan in Connecticut, you can come to the Connecticut Historical Society and look at our collection of Klan propaganda from the 1920s. The exhibition Black Citizenship in the Age of Jim Crow is open until September 14th. In it, you can learn a little bit about the Klan during the Reconstruction era and its rebirth in the 19-teens. On September 14th at the CHS, I'll be hosting a gallery talk in which we look at some of these items I've mentioned. Thanks for listening. I'm Natalie Belanger with Grading the Nutmeg. Thanks for listening. To learn more, you can join Natalie at the Connecticut Historical Society on September 14, 2019, for a gallery program related to this topic. Or visit the CHS's Research Center anytime to view the Ku Klux Klan documents yourself. This episode was produced by Natalie Bellinger and engineered by Patrick O'Sullivan. To hear more episodes of Grading the Nutmeg, subscribe on iTunes, iHeartRadio, Google Play, SoundCloud, or at gradingthenutmeg.libsyn.com. And for more great Connecticut history stories, subscribe to Connecticut Explored, the magazine of Connecticut history, at ctexplored.org. Please leave a review on iTunes for Grading the Nutmeg. We'd appreciate it. This is Walt Woodward, hoping you'll join us next time for another episode of Grading the Nutmeg.